CD7. It was only a hip bath, but at least there was an ice house in the city. Moist sat in a state of bliss amongst the floating ice, drinking a brandy and listened to the commotion outside. After a while there was a knock at the door and a male voice inquired, "'Are you decent, Mr Ballsmaster?' Uh, "'Thoroughly decent, but not dressed,' said Moist. He reached down beside him and put his winged hat on again. "'Do come in!' The mayor of Stolatz was a short, bird-like man who'd either become mayor very recently and immediately after the post had been held by a big fat man or thought that a robe that trailed several feet behind you and a chain that reached the waist was the look for civic dignitaries this year. Uh, "'Joel Gammel, sir,' he said nervously. "'I am the mayor here.' "'Really? Good to meet you, Joe,' said Moist, raising his glass. "'Excuse me if I don't get up. "'Your uh, horse uh, has run away after kicking three men, I'm sorry to say.' "'Really? He never usually does that,' said Moist. "'Don't worry, sir, we'll catch him, "'and anyway we can let you have a horse to get back on. "'Not as fast, though, I dare say.' "'Oh, dear,' said Moist, easing himself into a new position amongst the floating ice. "'That's a shame.' "'Oh, I know all about you, Mr Lipvig,' said the mayor, winking conspiratorially. "'There were some copies of the Times in the mailbag. "'A man who wants to be up and doing you are. "'A man full of vim you are. "'A man after my own heart you are. "'You aim for the moon, you do. "'You see your target and you go for it, hell for leather, you do. "'That's how I does business, too. "'You're a go-getter, just like me. "'I'd like you to put it here, sir.' "'What where?' said Moist, stirring uneasily in his rapidly becoming lukewarm tub. "'Oh!' he shook the proffered hand. "'What is your business, Mr. Camels?' "'I make parasols,' said the Mayor. "'And it's about time that Clax Company was told what's what. "'It was all fine up until a few months ago. "'I mean, they made you pay through the nose, "'but at least stuff got where it was going as fast as an arrow. "'But now it's all these breakdowns and repairs, "'and they charge even more, mark you.' "'and they never tell you how long you're going to be waiting. "'It's always very shortly. "'They're always sorry for the inconvenience. "'They even got that written on a sign they hang up on the office. "'As warm and human as a thrown knife, just like you said. "'So you know what we just done? "'We went round to the Clackstar in the city "'and had a serious word with young Davy, who's a decent lad, "'and he gave us back all the overnight clacks for the big city "'that never got sent. "'How about that, eh? "'Won't he get into trouble? "'He says he's quitting anyway.' "'None of the boys like the way the company's run now. "'They've all been stamped for you, just like you said. "'Well, I'll let you get dressed, Mr Lipvig. "'Your horse is ready.' "'He stopped at the door. "'Oh, just one thing, sir, about them stamps.' "'Yes? Is there a problem, Mr Camels?' said Moist. "'Not as such, sir. "'I wouldn't say anything against Lord Vetinari, sir, or Hank Morpork,' "'said a man living within twenty miles of a proud and touchy citizenry. "'But, er... Uh, "'It doesn't seem right licking, well, licking Ankh-Morpork stamps. "'Couldn't you print up a few for us? "'We've got a queen, nice girl. "'She'd look good on a stamp. "'We're an important city, you know.' "'I'll see what I can do, Mr Camels. "'Got a picture of her by any chance?' "'They'll all want one,' he thought as he got dressed. "'Having your own stamps could be like having your own flag, your own crest. "'It could be big. "'And I bet I could do a deal with my friend Mr Spools. "'Oh, yes. "'Doesn't matter if you haven't got your own post office. "'You've got to have your own stamp.' An enthusiastic crowd saw him off on a horse which, while no Boris, did his best and seemed to know what reins were for. Moist gratefully accepted the cushion on the saddle, too. That added more glitter to the glass. He'd ridden so hard he needed a cushion. He set off with a full mailbag. Amazingly, once again, people had bought stamps just to own them. The times had got around. Here was something new, so people wanted to be part of it. Once he was cantering over the fields, though, he felt the fizz die away. 
He was employing Stanley, a bunch of game but creaky old men, and some golems. He couldn't keep this up. But the thing was, you added sparkle. You told people what you intended to do, and they believed you could do it. Anyone could have done this ride. No one had. They kept waiting for the clacks to be repaired. He took things gently along the road, speeding up as he passed the clacks tower that had been under repair. It was still under repair, in fact, but he could see more men around it and high up on the tower. There was a definite suggestion that repair work was suddenly going a lot faster. As he watched, he was sure he saw someone fall off. It probably wouldn't be a good idea to go over there and see if he could help, though. Not if he wanted to continue to go through life with his own teeth. Besides, it was a long, long drop all the way down to the cabbage fields, handily combining death and burial at the same time. He speeded up when he reached the city. Somehow, trotting up to the post office steps was not an option. The queue, still a queue, cheered when he cantered up. Mr Grote came running out, in so far as a crab can run. "'Can you make another delivery just so lat, sir?' he shouted. "'Got a full bag already, and everyone's asking when you'll be taking him to Sutopolis and Quirm. Got one here for Lanka, too. What? That's five hundred damn miles, man!' Moist dismounted, although the state of his legs turned the action into more of a drop. "'It's all got a bit busy since you're away,' said Grote, steadying him. "'Oh, yes, indeed. Ain't got enough people. But there's people wanting jobs too, sir, since the paper came out.' "'People from the old postal families, just like me. "'Even some more workers out of retirement. "'Took the liberty of taking him on, pro tem, for the time being, "'seeing as I'm acting postmaster. "'I hope that's all right with you, sir. "'And Mr Spools is running off more stamps. "'I've twice had to send Stanley up for more. "'I hear we'll have the early five pennies and the dollars out tonight. "'Great times, eh, sir?' "'Er, uh, yes,' said Moist. "'Suddenly the whole world had turned into a kind of Boris, "'moving fast, inclined to bite, and impossible to steer.' The only way not to be ground down was to stay on top. Inside the hall, extra makeshift tables had been set up. They were crowded with people. "'We're selling them the envelopes and paper,' said Grote. "'The ink is free gratis.' "'Did you think that up yourself?' said Moist. "'No, it's what we used to do,' said Grote. "'Miss Macalariat got a load of cheap paper from Spools.' "'Miss Macalariat,' said Moist. "'Who is Miss Macalariat?' "'Very old post office family, sir,' said Grote. "'She's decided to work for you.' He looked a little nervous. "'Sorry,' said Moist. "'She has decided to work for me.' "'Well, you know what it's like with post-office people, sir,' said Grote. "'We don't like to—' "'Are you the postmaster?' said a withering voice behind Moist. The voice went into his head, bored down through his memories, riffled through his fears, found the right levers, battened onto them, and pulled. In Moist's case it found Frau Schambers— in the second year at school, you were precipitated out of the warm, easy-going kindergarten of Frau Tissel, smelling of finger-paint, salt dough and inadequate toilet training, and on to the cold benches governed by Frau Schambers, smelling of education. It was as bad as being born with the added disadvantage that your mother wasn't there. Moist automatically turned and looked down. Yes, there they were, the sensible shoes, the thick black stockings that were slightly hairy, the baggy cardigan. Oh, yes, ah, the cardigan. Frau Schambers used to stuff the sleeves with handkerchiefs. Ah, ugh! And the glasses, and the expression like an early frost. And her hair was plaited and coiled up on either side of her head in those discs that back home in Überwald had been called snails, but in Ankh-Morpork put people in mind of a woman with a curly iced bun clamped onto each ear. "'Now look here, Miss Macalariat,' he said firmly. "'I am the postmaster here, and I am in charge. 
and I do not intend to be browbeaten by a member of the counter-staff just because their ancestors worked here. I do not fear your clumpy shoes, Miss Macalariat. I smile happily in the teeth of your icy stare. Fie on you. Now I am a grown man, Frau Chambers, and I will quake not at your sharp voice, and I will control my bladder perfectly, however hard you look at me. Oh, yes, indeed, for I am the postmaster, and my word here is law. That was the sentence his brain said. Unfortunately, it got rooted through his trembling backbone on the way to his mouth, and issued from his lips as, Er, yes, which came out as a squeak. "'Mr. Lipfig, I ask you, I have nothing against them, "'but are these golems you're employing in my post-office gentlemen or ladies?' "'The terrible woman demanded. "'This was sufficiently unexpected to jolt Moist back into something like reality. "'What?' he said. "'I don't know. What's the difference? A bit more clay? Less clay? Why?' "'Miss Macalariat folded her arms, causing both Moist and Mr. Grote to shy backwards.' "'I hope you're not funning with me, Mr. Lipvig,' she demanded. "'What? Funning? I never fun.' Moist tried to pull himself together. Whatever happened next, he could not be made to stand in the corner. "'I do not fun, Miss Macalariat, and have no history of funning, "'and even if I were inclined to funning, Miss Macalariat, "'I would not dream of funning with you. What's the problem?' "'One of them was in the ladies' restroom, Mr. Lipvig,' said Miss Macalariat. "'Doing what?' "'I mean, they don't eat, so cleaning it, apparently,' said Miss Macalariat, "'contriving to suggest that she had dark suspicions on this point. "'But I have heard them referred to as Mr. "'Well, they do odd jobs all the time because they don't like to stop working,' said Moist, "'and we prefer to give them Mr. as an honorific because, um, it seems wrong, "'and there are some people, yes, some people, for whom the word Miss is not appropriate, Miss Macalariat. "'It is the principle of the thing, Mr. Lipvig,' "'said the woman firmly. "'Anyone called Mr. is not allowed in the ladies. "'That sort of thing can only lead to hanky-panky. "'I will not stand for it, Mr. Lipvig.' "'Moist stared at her. "'Then he looked up at Mr. Pump, who was never far away. "'Mr. Pump, is there any reason why one of the golems can't have a new name?' "'he asked, in the interest of hanky-panky avoidance. "'No, Mr. Lipvig,' the golem rumbled. "'Moist turned back to Mr. Macalariat. "'Would Gladys do, Miss Macalariat?' "'Gladys will be sufficient, Mr Lipvig,' said Miss Macalariat, "'more than a hint of triumph in her voice. "'She must be properly clothed, of course.' "'Clothed?' said Moist, weakly. "'But a golem isn't... it doesn't... they don't have...' "'He quailed under the glare and gave up. "'Yes, Miss Macalariat. Something gingham, I think, Mr Pump?' "'I shall arrange it, postmaster,' said the golem. "'Will that be all right, Miss Macalariat?' "'said Moist, meekly. "'For the present,' said Miss Macalariat, "'as if she regretted that there were currently no further things to complain of. "'Mr. Groot knows my particulars, Postmaster. "'I will now return to the proper execution of my duties. "'Otherwise, people will try to steal the pens again. "'You have to watch them like hawks, you know.' "'A good woman, that,' said Groat, as she strode away. Fifth generation of Miss Macalariats. "'Maiden name kept for professional purposes, of course. "'They got married?' From the mob around the makeshift counter came the ringing command, "'Put that pen back this minute! Do you think I'm made of pens?' "'Yes, sir,' said Grote. "'Do they bite their husbands' heads off on their wedding night?' said Moist. "'I wouldn't know about that sort of thing, sir,' said Grote, blushing. "'But she's even got a bit of a moustache. "'Yes, sir. There's someone for everyone in this wonderful world, sir. "'And we've got other people looking for work, you say?' Grote beamed. "'That's right, sir. Cost of the bit in the paper, sir. "'You mean this morning?' 
I expect that helped, sir, said Grote, but I reckon it was the lunchtime edition that did it. What lunchtime edition? We're all over the front page, said Grote proudly. I'll put a copy on your desk upstairs. Moist pushed the Stolat mailbag into the man's arms. Get this sorted, he said. If there's enough mail for another delivery to go, find some kid who's mad for a job and put him on a horse and get him to take it. Doesn't have to be fast. We'll call it the overnight delivery. Tell him to see the mayor and come back in the morning with any fresh mail. Right you are, sir, said Grote. We could do an overnight to Quirman's Hudopolis too, sir, if we could change horses like the mail coaches do. Hang on, why can't the mail coaches take it, said Moist. Hell, they're still called mail coaches, right? We know they take stuff from anyone on the quiet. Well, the post office is back in business, so they take our mail. Go and find whoever runs them and tell him so. Yes, sir, said Grote, beaming. Thought about how we're going to send post to the moon yet, sir? One thing at a time, Mr Grote. That's not like you, sir, said Grote cheerfully. All at once is more your style, sir. I wish it wasn't, Moist thought as he eased his way upstairs. But you had to move fast. He always moved fast. His whole life had been movement. Move fast because you never know what's trying to catch you up. He paused on the stairs. Not Mr Pump. The golem hadn't left the post office. He hadn't tried to catch him up. Was it that he'd been on postal business? How long could he be away on postal business? Could he fake his death, maybe? The old pile of clothes on the seashore trick? Worth remembering. All he needed was a long enough start. How did a golem's mind actually work? He'd have to ask Miss... Miss Dearheart. He'd been flying so high that he'd asked her out. That might be a problem now, because most of the lower part of his body was on fire, not especially for Miss Dearheart. Oh, well, he thought, as he entered his office. Perhaps he could find a restaurant with really soft seats. Faster than the speed of light. Old-fashioned mail beats clacks. Postmaster delivers. Says snook not cocked. Amazing scenes at post office. The headlines screamed at him as soon as he saw the paper. He almost screamed back. Of course he'd said all that, but he'd said it to the innocent smiling face of Miss Saccharissa Cripslock, not to the whole world, and then she'd written it all down truthfully, and suddenly you got this. Moist had never much bothered with newspapers. He was an artist. He wasn't interested in big schemes. You swindled the man in front of you, looking him sincerely in the eyes. The picture was good, though, he had to admit. The rearing horse, the winged hat, and above all, the slight blurring with speed. It was impressive. He relaxed a little. The place was operating, after all. Letters were being posted, mail was being delivered. OK, so a major part of it all was that the clax wasn't working properly, but maybe in time people would see that a letter to your sister in Stolat didn't need to cost 30 pence to maybe get there in an hour, but might as well cost mere five pence to be there in the morning. Stanley knocked at the door and then pushed it open. "'Cup of tea, Mr Litvig,' he said. "'And a bun, sir.' "'You're an angel in heavy disguise, Stanley,' said Moist, sitting back with care and wincing. "'Yes, thank you, sir,' said Stanley solemnly. "'Got some messages for you, sir.' "'Thank you, Stanley.' said Moist. There was a lengthy pause until he remembered that this was Stanley he was talking to, and added, "'Please tell me what they are, Stanley.' "'Ah, uh, the golem lady came in and said—' Stanley closed his eyes. "'Tell the streak of lightning he'll have another eight golems in the morning, and if he's not too busy working miracles, I'll accept his invitation to dine at eight at Le Foie Heure, meeting at the Mended Drum at seven. "'The happy liver, are you sure? But of course it would be correct. This was Stanley.' <laughs> "'Even the damn soup there is fifteen dollars,' said Moist. "'And you have to wait three weeks for an appointment to be considered for a booking. "'They weigh your wallet. "'How does she think I—' "'His eye fell on Mr Robinson's box. 
sitting innocently in the corner of the office. He liked Miss Dearheart. Most people were accessible. Sooner or later you could find the springs that worked them. Even Miss Macalariat would have a lever somewhere, although it was a horrible thought. But Adorabel fought back, and to make sure, fought back even before she was attacked. She was a challenge, and therefore fascinating. She was so cynical, so defensive, so spiky, and he had a feeling she could read him much, much better than he read her. All in all, she was intriguing, and looked good in a severely plain dress. Don't forget that bit. OK. Thank you, Stanley, he said. Anything else? The boy put a sheet of slightly damp, greeny-grey stamps on the desk. Are they first dollar stamps, sir? he announced. My word, Mr Spools has done a good job here, said Moist, staring at the hundreds of little green pictures of the university's Tower of Art. It even looks worth a dollar. Yes, sir. You hardly noticed the little man jumping from the top, said Stanley. Moist snatched the sheet from the boy's hand. What? Where? Oh, you need a magnifying glass, sir, and it's only on a few of them. In some of them he's in the water. Mr Spools is very sorry, sir. He says it may be some kind of induced magic. You know, sir, like even a picture of a wizard's tower might be a bit magical itself. There's a few faults on some of the others, too. The printing went wrong on some of the black penny ones, and Lord Vetinari's got grey hair, sir. Some haven't got gum on, but they're all right because some people have asked for them that way. Why? They say they're as good as real pennies and a whole lot lighter, sir. Do you like stamps, Stanley? said Moist kindly. He was feeling a lot better in a seat that didn't go up and down. Stanley's face lit up. Oh, yes, sir, really, sir. They're wonderful, sir. Amazing, sir. Moist raised his eyebrows. As good as that, eh? It's like, well... "'It's like being there when they invented the first pin, sir,' Stanley's face glowed. "'Really? The first pin, eh?' said Moist. "'Outstanding. Well, in that case, Stanley, you are head of stamps, the whole department, which is, in fact, you. How do you like that? I imagine you already know more about them than anyone else?' "'Oh, I do, sir. For example, on the very first run of the penny stamps, they used a different type of good,' said Moist hurriedly. "'Well done.' "'Can I keep this first sheet as a souvenir?' "'Of course, sir,' said Stanley. "'Head of stamp, sir. Wow. Ah, uh, is there a hat?' "'If you like,' said Moist generously, "'folding up the sheet of stamps and putting them in his inside pocket. "'So much more convenient than dollars. Wow, indeed. "'Or perhaps a shirt,' he added. "'You know, ask me about stamps.' "'Good idea, sir. Can I go and tell Mr Grote, sir? "'He'd be so proud of me.' "'Off you go, Stanley,' said Moist. "'But come back in ten minutes, will you? "'I'll have a letter for you to deliver, personally.' Stanley ran off. Moist opened the wooden box, which fanned out its trays obediently and flexed his fingers. Hmm. It seemed that anyone who was, well, anyone in the city had their paper printed by Teemer and Spools. Moist thumbed through his recently acquired paper samples and spotted the Grand Trunk Company as fast as light from the office of the chairman. It was tempting, very tempting. They were rich, very rich. Even with the current trouble, they were still very big and Moist had never met a head waiter who hated money. He found a copy of yesterday's Times. There'd been a picture, yes, here. There was a picture of Reacher Gilt, chairman of the Grand Trunk, at some function. He looked like a better class of pirate, a, a buccaneer, maybe, but one who took the time to polish his plank. That flowing black hair, that beard, that eye patch, and, oh, gods, that cockatoo, that was a look, wasn't it? Moist hadn't paid much attention to the Grand Trunk Company. It was too big, and from what he'd heard it practically employed its own army. Things could be tough in the mountains, where you were often a long way from anything that resembled a watchman. It wasn't a good idea to steal things from people who did their own law enforcement, 
they tended to be very definite. But what he was intending wouldn't be stealing. It might not even be breaking the law. Fooling a maitre d' was practically a public service. He looked at the picture again. Now, how would a man like that sign his name? Hmm. Flowing yet small, that would be the handwriting of Reacher Gilt. He was so florid, so sociable, so huge a personality, that one who was good at this sort of thing might wonder if another shard of glass was trying to sparkle like a diamond. And the essence of forgery is to make, by misdirection and careful timing, the glass look so much more like a diamond than a diamond does. Well, it was worth a try. It was not as though he was going to swindle anyone as such. Hmm. Small, yet flowing, yes. But someone who'd never seen the man's writing would expect it to be extravagantly big and curly, just like him. Moist poised the pen over the headed paper and then wrote, Maitre d' le foi heureux. I would be most grateful if you could find a table for my good friend Mr. Lipvig and his lady at eight o'clock tonight. Reacher Gilt. Most grateful, that was good. The Reacher Gilt persona probably tipped like a drunken sailor. He folded the letter and was addressing the envelope when Stanley and Grote came in. You've got a letter, Mr. Lipvig, said Stanley proudly. Yes, here it is, said Moist. Now, I mean, here's one for you, said the boy. They exchanged envelopes. Moist glanced cursorily at the envelope and opened it with a thumb. I've got bad news, sir, said Grote as Stanley left. Hmm, said Moist, looking at the letter. Postmaster. The Pseudopolis clack line will break down at 9am tomorrow. The smoking gnu. Yes, sir, I went round to the coach office, Grote went on, and told them what you said, and they said, You stick to your business, thank you very much, and they'll stick to theirs. Hmm, said Moist, still staring at the letter. Well, well. Have you heard of someone called the smoking gnu, Mr Grote? What's a gnu, sir? A bit like a dangerous cow, I think, said Moist. Uh, what were you saying about the coach people? They give me lip, sir, that's what they give me said Grote. I told them, I told them I was the assistant head postmaster, and they said, so what, sir? Then I said, I tell you, sir, and they said, you want to know what they said, sir? Hmm? Oh, yes, I'm a gog, Tolliver. Moist's eyes were scanning the strange letter over and over again. They said, yeah, right, said Grote, a beacon of righteous indignation. I wonder if Mr Trooper can still fit me in, mused Moist, staring at the ceiling. Sorry, sir? Oh, nothing, I suppose I'd better go and talk to them. Go and find Mr Pump, will you, and tell him to bring a couple of the other golems, will you? I want to impress people. Igor opened the front door in answer to the knock. There was no one there. He stepped outside and looked up and down the street. There was no one there. He stepped back inside, closing the door behind him, and no one was standing in the hall, his black cloak dripping rain, removing his wide, flat-brimmed hat. Ah, Mr Gryle, sir. Igor said to the tall figure, "'I should have known it was you.' "'Reacher Gilt asked for me,' said Gryle. It was more a breath than a voice. The clan of the Igors had had any tendency to shuddering bred out of it generations ago, which was just as well. Igor felt uneasy in the presence of Gryle and his kind. "'The master is expecting,' he began, but there was no one there. It wasn't magic, and Gryle wasn't a vampire. Igors could spot these things. It was just that there was nothing spare about him. Spare flesh, spare time, or spare words. It was impossible to imagine Gryle collecting pins, or savouring wine, or even throwing up after a bad pork pie. The picture of him cleaning his teeth or sleeping completely failed to form in the mind. 
he gave the impression of restraining himself with difficulty from killing you. Thoughtfully, Igor went down to his room off the kitchen and checked that his little leather bag was packed just in case. In his study, Reacher Gilt poured a small brandy. Gryle looked around him with eyes that seemed not at home with the limited vistas of a room. "'Have yourself,' said Gilt. "'What?' said Gryle. "'I expect you know what this is about.' "'No.' Gryle was not a man for small talk, or, if it came to it, any talk at all. "'You've read the newspapers?' "'Do not read.' "'You know about the post office?' "'Yes.' "'How, may I ask?' "'There is talk.' Gilt accepted that. Mr Gryle had a special talent, and if that came as a package with funny little ways, then so be it. Besides, he was trustworthy, a man without middle grounds. He'd never blackmail you because such an attempt would be the first move in a game that would almost certainly end in death for somebody. If Mr Gryle found himself in such a game, he'd kill right now without further thought in order to save time and assume that anyone else would too. Presumably he was insane by the usual human standards, but it was hard to tell. The phrase differently normal might do instead. After all, Gryle could probably defeat a vampire within ten seconds and had none of a vampire's vulnerabilities, except perhaps an inordinate fondness for pigeons. He'd been a real find. "'And you have discovered nothing about Miss Olivig,' said Gilt. "'No. Father dead. Mother dead. Raised by grandfather. Sent away to school. Bullet. Ran away. Vanished,' said the tall figure. Mm. "'I wonder where he's been all this time. Or who he has been.' Gryle didn't waste breath on rhetorical questions. "'He is a nuisance.' "'Understood.' And that was the charm. Gryle did understand.' He seldom needed an order, you just had to state the problem. The fact that it was Gryle you were stating it to went a long way towards ensuring what the solution was likely to be. The post office building is old and full of paper, very dry paper, said Gilt. It would be regrettable if the fine old place caught fire. Understood. And that was another thing about Gryle. He really did not talk much. He especially did not talk about the old times and all the other little solutions he had provided for Reacher Gilt and he never said things like, "'What do you mean?' He understood. "'Require one thousand three hundred dollars,' he said. "'Of course,' said Gilt. "'I will clax it to your accounting. "'We'll take cash,' said Gryle. "'Gold?' "'I don't keep that much around,' said Gilt. "'I can get it in a few days, of course, "'but I thought you preferred... "'I do not trust the semaphore now. "'But our ciphers are very well... "'I do not trust the semaphore now,' Gryle repeated. "'Very well.' "'Description,' said Gryle. "'No one seems to remember what he looks like,' said Gilt. "'But he always wears a big golden hat with wings, "'and he has an apartment in the building.' "'For a moment something flickered around Gryle's thin lips. "'It was a smile panicking at finding itself in such an unfamiliar place. "'Can he fly?' he said. "'Alas, he doesn't seem inclined to venture into high places,' said Gilt. "'Gryle stood up. "'I will do this tonight. "'Good man, or rather—' Understood, said Gryle. Chapter 9. Bonfire. Slugger and lead pipe. Gladys pulls it off. The hour of the dead. Irrational fear of dental spinach. A proper brawl doesn't just happen. How the trunk was stolen. Stanley's little moment. The etiquette of knives. Face to face. Fire.
The mail coaches had survived the decline and fall of the post office because they had to. Horses needed to be fed, but in any case, the coaches had always carried passengers. The halls went silent, the chandeliers disappeared along with everything else, even things that were nailed down, but out back in the big yard, the coach service flourished. The coaches weren't exactly stolen and weren't exactly inherited. They just drifted into the possession of the coach people. Then, according to Grote, who regarded himself as the custodian of all post office knowledge, the other coach drivers had been bought out by Big Jim still standing upright, with the money he'd won betting on himself in a bare-knuckle contest against Harold the Hog Boots. And the coach business was now run by his sons, Harry Slugger Upright and Little Jim Leadpipe Upright. Moist could see that a careful approach was going to be required. The hub or nerve centre of the coach business was a big shed next to the stable. It smelled, no, it stank, no, it fugged of horses, leather, veterinary medicine, bad coal, brandy and cheap cigars. That's what a fug was. You could have cut cubes out of the air and sold it for cheap building material. When Moist entered, a huge man, made practically spherical by multiple layers of waistcoats and overcoats, was warming his backside in front of the roaring stove. Another man of very much the same shape was leaning over the shoulder of a clerk, both of them concentrating on some paper. Some staffing debate had obviously been in progress, because the man by the fire was saying, "'Well, then, if he's sick, put young Alfred on the evening run, and...' He stopped when he saw Moist and said, "'Yes, sir, what can we do for you?' "'Carry my mailbags,' said Moist. They stared at him, and then the man who'd been toasting his bottom broke into a grin. Jim and Harry Upright might have been twins. They were big men who looked as though they'd been built out of pork and fat bacon. "'Are you this shiny new postmaster we've been hearing about?' "'That's right.' "'Yeah, well, your man was already here,' said the toaster. "'Went on and on about how we should do this and do that. Never said anything about the price.' "'A price?' said Moist, spreading out his hands and beaming. "'Is that what all this is about? Easily done! Easily done!' He turned, opened the door, and shouted, "'Okay, Gladys!' There was some shouting in the darkness of the yard, and then the creak of timber. "'What the hell did you do?' said the spherical man. "'My price is this,' said Moist. "'You agree to carry my mail, and you won't have another wheel dragged off that mail coach out there. I can't say fairer than that, okay?' The man lumbered forward, growling, but the other coachman grabbed his coat. "'Steady there, Jim,' he said. "'He's government, and he's got golems working for him.' On cue, Mr Pump stepped into the room, bending to get through the doorway. Jim scowled at him. "'That don't frighten me,' said Jim. "'They ain't allowed to hurt folks.' "'Wrong,' said Moist. "'Probably dead wrong.' "'Then we'll call the watch on yer,' said Harry Upright, still holding back his brother. "'All proper and official. How do you like that?' "'Good.' "'Call the watch,' said Moist, "'and I shall tell them I'm recovering stolen property.' He raised his voice. "'Gladys!' There was another crash from outside. "'Stolen? Those coaches are ours,' said Harry upright. "'Wrong again, I'm afraid,' said Moist. "'Mr Pump?' "'The mail coaches were never sold off,' the golem rumbled. "'They are the property of the post office. "'No rent has been paid for the use of post office property.' "'Right, that's it.' Jim roared, shaking his brother away. Mr Pump's fists rose instantly. The world paused. "'Hold on, Jim, hold on just one minute,' said Harry upright carefully. "'What's your game, Mr Postman?' 
The coaches always used to carry passengers too, right? And then there was no mail to take, but people still wanted to travel. And the coaches were just standing around, and the horses were needing to be fed. So our dad paid for the fodder and the vet's bills, and no one... Just take my mail, said Moist. That's all. Every coach takes the mailbags and drops them off where I say. That's all. Tell me where you'll get a better deal tonight, eh? You could try your luck pleading finders, keepers to veterinary, but that'd take a while to sort out, and in the meantime you'd lose all that lovely revenue. No? OK. Glad it... No, 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 wait a minute, said Harry. Just the mailbags, that's all. What? said Jim. You want to negotiate? Why? They say possession's nine points to law, right? And I possess a lot of golems, Mr Upright, said Moist, and you don't possess any deeds, mortgages or bills of sale. Yeah, and you won't possess any teeth, mister, said Jim, rolling forward. Now, now, said Moist, stepping quickly in front of Mr Pump and raising a hand, don't kill me again, Mr Upright. Both the brothers looked puzzled. I'll swear Jim never laid a finger on you, and that's the truth, said Harry. What's your game? Oh, he did, Harry, said Moist. Lost his temper, took a swing. I went over, hit my head on that old bench there, got up, not knowing where the hell I was. You tried to hold Jim back. He hit me with that chair, the one just there, and then down I went for keeps. The golems got you, Harry, but Jim went on the run, only to be tracked down by the watch in Stolat. Oh, what scenes. What chases, and you both ended up in the tanty, the charge against the pair of you being murder. Here, I didn't hit you with the chair, said Harry, eyes wide. It was J- Here, hang on a minute. And this morning, Mr Trooper measured you up for the last necktie, and there you were, standing in that room under the gallows, knowing that you'd lost your business, you'd lost your coaches, you'd lost your fine horses, and in two minutes... Moist let the sentence hang in the air. And, said Harry, both brothers were watching him with expressions of horrified confusion which would coalesce into violence inside five seconds if this didn't work. Keeping them off balance, that was the ticket. Moist counted to four in his head while smiling beatifically. And then an angel appeared, he said. Ten minutes can change a lot. It was enough to brew two cups of tea thick enough to spread on bread. The brothers uprights probably didn't believe in angels, but they believed in bullshit and were the type to admire it when it was delivered with panache. There's a kind of big outdoor sort of man who's got no patience at all with prevaricators and fibbers, but will applaud any man who can tell an outrageous whopper with a gleam in his eye. Funny you should turn up tonight, said Harry. Oh, why? Because a man from the Grand Trunk came round this afternoon and offered us big money for the business. Too much money, you could say. Oh, thought Moist, something starting. But you, Mr Lipvig, is giving us nothing but attitude and threats, said Jim. Care to raise your offer? Okay. Bigger threats, said Moist. But I'll throw in a new paint job on every coach, gratis. Be sensible, gentlemen. You've had an easy ride, but now we're back in business. All you have to do is what you've always done, but you'll carry my mail. Come on, there's a lady waiting for me, and you know you shouldn't keep a lady waiting. What do you say? Is she an angel? said Harry. He probably hopes not. <laughs> Jim had a laugh like a bull clearing its throat. <laughs> said Moist solemnly. Just carry the bags, gents. The post office is going places and you could be in the driving seat. The brothers exchanged a glance. Then they grinned. It was as if one grin spread across two glistening red faces. Our dad would have liked you, said Jim. He sure as hell wouldn't like the grand trunk devils, said Harry. They need cutting down to size, Mr Lipvig, and people are saying you're the man to do it. People die on them towers, said Jim. We see, you know. Damn right. The towers follows the coach roads. 
We used to have the contract to all lads out to the towers and we heard them talking. They used to have an hour a day when they shut the old trunk down for maintenance. The hour of the dead, they called it, said Harry. Just before dawn, that's when people die. Across a continent, the line of light beads on the pre-dawn darkness. And then the hour of the dead begins, at either end of the grand trunk, as the upline and downline shutters clear their messages and stop moving one after the other. The men of the towers had prided themselves on the speed with which they could switch their towers from black and white daylight transmission to the light and dark mode of the night. On a good day they could do it with barely a break in transmission, clinging to swaying ladders high above the ground while around them the shutters rattled and chattered. They were heroes who'd lit all sixteen lamps on a big tower in less than a minute, sliding down ladders, swinging on ropes, keeping their tower alive. Alive was the word they used. No one wanted a dark tower, not even for a minute. The hour of the dead was different. That was one hour for repairs, replacements, maybe even some paperwork. It was mostly replacements. It was fiddly to repair a shutter high up on the tower, with the wind making it tremble and freezing the blood in your fingers, and always better to swing it out and down to the ground and slot another one in place. But when you were running out of time, it was tempting to brave the wind and try to free the bloody shutters by hand. Sometimes the wind won. The hour of the dead was when men died. And when a man died, they sent him home by clacks. Moist's mouth dropped open. Huh? That's what they call it, said Harry. Not literally, of course. But they send his name from one end of the trunk to the other, ending up at the tower nearest his home. Yeah, but they say sometimes the person stays on in the towers somehow, said Jim. Living on the overhead, they call it. But they're mostly pissed when they say that, said Harry. Oh, yeah, mostly pissed, I'll grant you, said his brother. They got work too hard. There's no hour of the dead now. They only get twenty minutes. They cut the staff too. They used to run a slow service on octodays. Now it's high speed all the time, except towers keep breaking down. We seen lads come down from them towers with their eyes spinning and their hands shaking and no idea if it's bum or breakfast time. It drives them mad, eh? Damn right. Except that they're already mad, said Harry. You'd have to be mad to work up in them things. They get so mad even ordinary mad people think they're mad. That's right. But they still go back up there. The clax drives them back. The clax owns them, gets into their souls, said Harry. They get paid practically nothing, but I'll swear they'd go up those towers for free. The Grand Trunk runs on blood now. Since the new gang took over, it's killing men for money, said Jim. Harry drained his mug. We won't have none of it, he said. We'll run your mail for you, Mr Litvig, for all that you wear a damn silly hat. Tell me, said Moist, have you ever heard of something called the Smoking Gnu? Don't know much, said Jim. Couple of the boys mentioned them once. Some kind of outlaw signalers or something. Something to do with the overhead. What is the overhead? Um, dead people live in it? Look, Mr Lipvig, we just listen, OK, said Jim. We chat to them nice and easy, cos when they come down from the towers, they're so dozy, they'll walk under your coach wheels. It's the rocket in the wind, said Harry. They walk like sailors. Right. The overhead? Well, they say a lot of the messages the clax carries is about the clax, OK? Orders from the company, housekeeping messages, messages about messages. Dead men's names, said Moist. Yeah, them too. Well, the smoking canoe is in there somewhere, Jim went on. That's all I know. I drive coaches, Mr Litvig. I ain't a clever man like them up on the towers. Ha! I'm stupid enough to keep my feet on the ground. Tell Mr Litvig about Tower 93, Jim, said Harry. Make his flesh creep. Yeah, heard about that one, said Jim, looking slyly at Moist. No? What happened? 
Only two lads were up there, where there should have been three. One of them went out in a gale to budge a stuck shutter, which he shouldn't have done, and fell off and got his safety rope tangled round his neck. So the other bloke rushed out to get him without his safety rope, which he shouldn't have done, and they reckon he got blown right off the tower. That's horrible, said Moist. Not creepy, though, as such. Oh, you want the creepy bit. Ten minutes after they was both dead, the tower sent a message for help. Sent by a dead man's hand. Jim stood up and put his tricorn hat on. Got to take a coach out in twenty minutes. Nice to meet you, Mr Litvig. He pulled open a drawer in the battered desk and pulled out a length of lead pipe. That's for highwaymen, he said, and then took out a big silver brandy flask. And this is for me, he added, with rather more satisfaction. Eh? Damn right. And I thought the post office was full of crazy people, Moist thought. Thank you, he said, standing. Then he remembered the strange letter in his pocket, for whatever use it was, and added, Have you got a coach stopping at Pseudopolis tomorrow? Yeah, ten o'clock, said Harry. We'll have a bag for it, said Moist. Is it worth it? said Jim. It's more than fifty miles, and I heard they've got the trunk repaired. It's a stopping coach. Won't get there till nearly dark. Got to make the effort, Jim, said Moist. The coachman gave him a look with a little glint that indicated that he thought Moist was up to something, but said, Well, you're game, I'll say that for you. We'll wait for your bag, Mr Lipvig, and the best of luck to you. Must rush, sir. What coach are you taking out? said Moist. I'll take the first two stages of the overnight flyer to Quirm, leaving at seven, said Jim. If it's still got all its wheels. It's nearly seven. Twenty-two, sir. I'll be late. The coachman watched him run back across the yard, with Mr Pump and Gladys trailing slowly behind. Jim pulled on his thick leather gauntlets thoughtfully, and then said to his brother, Do you know how you get them funny feelings? I reckon I do, Jim. And would you reckon there'll be a clax failure between here and Sudotlis tomorrow? Funny you should mention that. Mind you, it'd be a two-to-one bet anyway, the way things have been going. Maybe he's just a betting man, Jim. Yeah, said Jim. Yeah, eh? Damn right. Moist struggled out of the golden suit. It was good advertising, no doubt about it, and when he wore it he felt he had style coming out of his ears, but wearing something like that to the mended drum meant that he wanted to be hit over the head with a stool, and what would come out of his ears wouldn't bear thinking about. He threw the winged hat on the bed and struggled into his second golem-made suit. Sombre, he'd said. You had to hand it to golem tailoring. The suit was so black that if it had been sprinkled with stars, the owls would have collided with it. He needed more time, but Adorabelle Deerheart was not someone you felt you should keep waiting. "'You look fine, sir,' said Groat. "'Thanks, thanks,' said Moist, struggling with his tie. "'You're in charge, Mr Groat. Should all be quiet this evening. Remember, first thing tomorrow, all mail for Sudopolis ten pence ago, OK?' "'Right you are, sir. Can I wear the hat now?' Groat pleaded. "'What? What?' said Moist, staring into the mirror. "'Look, have I got spinach between my teeth?' "'Have you eaten spinach today, sir?' said Mr Pump. "'I haven't eaten spinach since I was old enough to spit,' said Moist. "'But people always worry about that at a time like this, don't they?' I thought it just turned up somehow, you know, like moss. What was it you asked me, Tolliver? Can I wear the hat, sir? said Grote patiently. Being as I'm your deputy and you're going out, sir. But we're closed, Grote. Yep, yep, but it's... I'd just like to wear the hat for a while, sir, just for a while, sir, if it's all right with you. Grote shifted from one foot to the other. I mean, I will be in charge. Moist sighed. Yes, of course, Mr Grote, you may wear the hat. Mr Pump? Yes, sir. Mr Grote is in charge for the evening. You will not follow me, please. "'No, I will not. My day off begins now, for all of us. "'We will return at sunset tomorrow,' said the golem. "'Oh, yes, one day off every week,' Miss Dearheart had said, 
It was part of what distinguished golems from hammers. I wish you'd give me more warning, you know. We're going to be a bit short-staffed. You were told, Mr. Leapvig. Yes, yes, it is a rule. It's just that tomorrow is going to be... Don't you worry about a thing, sir, said Groat. Some of the lads I are today, sir, they're postman's sons, sir, and grandsons. No problem, sir. They'll be out delivering tomorrow. Oh, good. That's fine, then. Moist adjusted the tie again. A black tie on a black shirt, under a black jacket, isn't easy even to find. All right, Mr. Pump. Still no attack of spinach? I'm going to see a lady. Yes, Mr. Lipvig, Miss dear heart, said the golem calmly. How did you know that? said Moist. "'You shouted it out in front of approximately a hundred people, Mr. Lipvig,' said Mr. Pump. "'We, that is to say, Mr. Lipvig, all the golems. "'We wish Miss Dearheart was a happier lady. "'She has had much trouble. "'She is looking for someone with a cigarette lighter,' said Moist quickly. "'Stop right there, Mr. Pump, please. "'Cupids are these little overweight kids in nappies, all right? "'Not big clay people.' "'Ang Hamorad said she reminded him of Leela, the volcano goddess who smokes all the time because the god of rain has rained on her lava,' the golem went on. "'Yes, but women always complain about that sort of thing,' said Moist. "'I look all right, Mr. Groat, do I?' "'Oh, sir,' said Groat, "'I shouldn't think Mr. Moist von Lipvig ever has to worry when he's off to meet a young lady, eh?' "'Come to think of it,' Moist came to think as he hurried through the crowded streets, "'he never has been off to meet a young lady.' Not in all these years. Oh, Alfred and all the rest of them had met hundreds and had all kinds of fun, including once getting his jaw dislocated, which was only fun in a no-fun-at-all kind of way. But Moist, never. He'd always been behind the false moustache or glasses or, really, just a false person. He had that naked feeling again and began to wish he hadn't left his golden suit behind. When he reached the mended drum, he remembered why he had. People kept telling him that Ankh Morpork was a lot more civilised these days, that between them the Watch and the Guilds had settled things down enough to ensure that actually being attacked while going about your lawful business in Ankh Morpork was now merely a possibility, instead of, as it once was, a matter of course. And the streets were so clean now that you could sometimes even see the street. But the mended drum could be depended upon. If someone didn't come out of the door backwards and fall down in the street just as you passed, then there was something wrong with the world. And there was a fight going on, more or less, but in some ways, at least, time had moved on. You couldn't just haul off and belt someone with knacks these days. People expected things of a bar brawl. As he went in, Moist passed a large group of men of the broken-nosed, one-eared persuasion bent in anxious conclave. Look, Bob, what part of this don't you understand, eh? It's a matter of style, OK? A proper brawl doesn't just happen. You don't just... "'Pile in, not any more. "'Now, Oyster Dave here, put your helmet back on, Dave, "'will be the enemy in front, and Bessalt, "'who, as we know, don't need a helmet, "'he'll be the enemy coming up behind you. "'Okay, it's well past Knuckles' time. "'Let's say Gravy there has done his thing with the bench swipe. "'There's a bit of knife play. "'We've done the old chandelier swing number, blah, blah, blah. "'Then second chair, that's you, Bob. "'You step smartly between their number five man and a bottler.' "'Swing the chair back over your head like this. "'Oh, sorry, Pointy. "'And then swing it right back onto number five. "'Bang, crash, and there's a cushy six points in your pocket. "'If they're playing a dwarf at number five, "'then a chair won't even slow him down. "'But don't fret. "'Hang on to the bits that stay in your hand. "'Pause one moment as he comes at you, "'and then belt him across both ears. "'They ate that, as strong in the army, I will tell you. "'Another three points. 
It's probably going to be freestyle after that, but I want all of you, including Mucky Mick and Crispo, to try for a double Andrew when it gets down to the fist-fighting again. Remember? You back into each other, turn round to give the other guy a thumping, cue moment of humorous recognition, then link left arms, swing round and see to the other fellow's attacker, foot or fist, it's your choice. Fifteen points right there if you get it to flow just right. Oh, and remember, we'll have an Igor standing by, so if your arm gets taken off, do pick it up and hit the other bugger with it. It gets a laugh and twenty points. On that subject, do remember what I said about getting everything tattooed with your name, all right? Egos do their best, but you'll be on your feet much quicker if you make life easier for him. And what's more, it's your feet you'll be on. Okay? Positions, everyone. Let's run through it again. Moist sidled past the group and scanned the huge room. The important thing was not to slow down. Slowing down attracted people. He saw a thin plume of blue smoke rise above the crowd and forced his way through. Miss Dearheart was sitting alone at a very small table with a very small drink in front of her. She couldn't have been there long, the only other stool was unoccupied. "'Do you come in here often?' said Moist, slipping onto it quickly. Miss Dearheart raised her eyebrows at him. "'Yes, why not?' "'Well, I... I imagine it's not very safe for a woman on her own.' "'What? With all these big strong men here to protect me? Why don't you go and get your drink?' Moist got to the bar, eventually, by dropping a handful of small change on the floor. That usually cleared the crush a little. When he returned, his seat was occupied by a currently friendly drunk. Moist recognised the type, and the operative word was currently. Miss Dearheart was leaning back to avoid his attentions, and more probably his breath. Moist heard the familiar cry of the generously sloshed. Oh, right, what I'm saying is right, what I'm saying, I mean, why don't you, right, give me a kiss, right, all I'm saying is... Oh, gods, I'm going to have to do something, Moist thought. He's big, and he's got a sword like a butcher's cleaver and the moment I say anything, he's going to go right into stage four, violent, undirected madmen, and they can be surprisingly accurate before they fall over. He put down his drink. Miss Dearheart gave him a very brief look and shook her head. There was movement under the table, a small, fleshy kind of noise, and the drunk suddenly bent forward, colour draining from his face. Probably only he and Moist heard Miss Dearheart purr, "'What is sticking in your foot? Is a mitzi, pretty Lucretia, four-inch heel?' the most dangerous footwear in the world. Considered as pounds per square inch, it's like being trodden on by a very pointy elephant. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, could she press it all the way through to the floor? And you know, I'm not sure about that myself. The sole of your boot might give me a bit of trouble, but nothing else will. But that's not the worrying part. The worrying part is that I was forced practically at knife point to take ballet lessons as a child, which means I can kick like a mule, and you are sitting in front of me, and I have another shoe. Good. I can see you have worked that out. I'm going to withdraw the heel now. There was a small pop from under the table. With great care, the man stood up, turned, and without a backward glance, lurched unsteadily away. Can I bother you? said Moist. Miss Dearheart nodded, and he sat down with his legs crossed. He was only a drunk, he ventured. Yes, men say that kind of thing said Miss Dearheart. Anyway, tell me that if I hadn't done that, you wouldn't now be trying to collect all your teeth in your hat, which you are not wearing, I notice. This must be your secret identity. Sorry, was that the wrong thing to say? You spilled your drink? Moist wiped beer off his lapel. No, this is me, he said, pure and unadorned. You hardly know me, and yet you invited me out on a date, said Miss Dearheart. Why? 
because you called me a phony, Moist thought. You saw through me straight away, because you didn't nail my head to the door with your crossbow, because you have no small talk, because I'd like to get to know you better, even though it would like smooching an ashtray, because I wonder if you could put into the rest of your life the passion you put into smoking a cigarette. In defiance of Miss Macalariat, I'd like to commit hanky-panky with you, Miss Adorabelle Dearheart. Well, certainly hanky, and possibly panky when we get to know one another better. I'd like to know as much about your soul as you know about mine. He said, Because I hardly know you. If it comes to that, I hardly know you either, said Miss Dearheart. I'm rather banking on that, said Moist. This got a smile. Smooth answer, Slick. Where are we really eating tonight? Le foie heureux, of course, said Moist. She looked genuinely surprised. You got a reservation? Oh, yes. You've got a relative that works there, then? You're blackmailing the maitre d'. No, but I've got a table for tonight, said Moist. Then it's some sort of trick, said Miss Dearheart. I'm impressed. But I'd better warn you, enjoy the meal. It may be your last. What? The Grand Trunk Company kills people, Mr. Lipvig, in all kinds of ways. You must be getting on Reacher Girl's nerves. Oh, come on. I'm barely a wasp at their picnic. And what do people do to wasps, do you think? said Miss Dearheart. The trunk is in trouble, Mr. Lipvig. The company has been running it as a machine for making money. They thought repair would be cheaper than maintenance. They've cut everything to the bone. To the bone. They're people who can't take a joke. Do you think Reacher Gilt will hesitate for one minute to swat you? But I'm being very... Moist tried. Do you think you're playing a game with them? Ringing doorbells and running away? Gilt's aiming to become patrician one day. Everyone says so. And suddenly there's this... This idiot in a big gold hat, reminding everyone what a mess the clax is, poking fun at it, getting the post office working again. Hang on, hang on, Moist managed. This is a city, not some cow town somewhere. People don't kill business rivals just like that, do they? And Ank Morpork? You really think so? Oh, he won't kill you. He won't even bother with the formality of going through the Guild of Assassins. You'll just die, just like my brother, and he'll be behind it. Your brother, said Moist. On the far side of the huge room, the evening's fight began with a well-executed looking at me in a funny way, earning two points and a broken tooth. He and some other people who used to work on the trunk before it was pirated, pirated, Mr. Lipvig, were going to start up a new trunk, said Miss Dearheart, leaning forward. They'd scraped up funding somehow for a few demonstration towers. It was going to be more than four times as fast as the old system. They were going to do all kinds of clever things with the coding. It was going to be wonderful. A lot of people gave them their savings. People had worked for my father. Most of the good engineers left when my father lost the trunk, you see. They couldn't stand guilt in his bunch of looters. My brother was going to get all our money back. Uh, you've lost me there, said Moist. An axe landed in the table and juddered. Miss Dearheart stared at Moist and blew a stream of smoke past his ear. My father was Robert Dearheart, she said distantly. He was chairman of the original Grand Trunk Company. The Clax was his vision. Hell, he designed half the mechanisms in the towers, and he got together with a group of other engineers, all serious men with slide rules, and they borrowed money and mortgaged their houses and built a local system and poured the money back in and started building the trunk. There was a lot of money coming in. Every city wanted to be in on it. Everyone was going to be rich. We had stables. I had a horse. Admittedly, I didn't like it very much, but I used to feed it and watch it run about or whatever it is they do. Everything was going fine, and suddenly he got this letter, and there were meetings, and they said he was lucky not to go to prison for, oh, I don't know, something complicated and legal. 
but the clacks were still making huge amounts. Can you understand that? Reacher Guild and his gang acted friendly, oh yes, but they were buying up the mortgages and controlling banks and moving numbers around, and they pulled the grand trunk out from under us like thieves. All they want to do is make money. They don't care about the trunk. They'll run it into the ground and make more money by selling it. When Dad was in charge, people were proud of what they did. And because they were engineers, they made sure that the towers worked properly all the time. They even had what they called walking towers, prefabricated ones that packed onto a couple of big carts, so that if a tower was having serious trouble, they could set this one up alongside and start it up and take over the traffic without dropping a single code. They were proud of it. Everyone was. They were proud to be part of it. You should have been there. You should have seen it, Moist said to himself. He hadn't meant to say it aloud. Across the room, a man hit another man with his own leg and picked up seven points. Yes, said Miss Dearheart. You should have. And three months ago, my brother John raised enough to start a rival to the trunk. That took some doing. Guilt has got his tentacles everywhere. Well, John ended up dead in a the field. They said he hadn't clipped his safety rope on. He always did. And now my father just sits and stares at the wall. He even lost his workshop when everything got taken away. We lost our house, of course. Now we live with my aunt and Dolly sisters. That's what we've come to. When Reacher Gilt talks about freedom, he means his, not anyone else's. And now you pop up, Mr. Moist von Lipvig, all shiny and new, running around, doing everything at once. Why? Veterinary offered me the job, that's all, said Moist. Why did you take it? It was a job for life. She stared at Moist so hard that he began to feel uncomfortable. Well... "'You've managed to get a table at Le Foix Heureux at a few hours' notice,' she conceded, as a knife struck a beam behind her. "'Are you still going to lie if I ask you how?' "'Yes, I think so. Good. Shall we go?' End of CD 7